Anne Hyatt is a best-selling author, executive consultant, speaker, and investor. She's a Silicon Valley veteran with 15 years experience reporting directly to CEOs Jeff Bezos at Amazon and Eric Schmidt at Google Alphabet. Anne consults with CEOs and their leadership teams across the globe on C-suite optimization. Anne has published articles and publications such as Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and CNBC. She has also contributed to articles in the New York Times, Economic Times, the Financial Times, and Forbes. Her best-selling book, Bet on Yourself, was published by HarperCollins. Anne Hyatt, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you very much for having me. I really like your energy and I can see why Jeff Bezos and Google took you on board in the early stages of their companies because you have this dynamic energy and ability to absorb things very quickly. Were you always so attuned to your surroundings and taking on challenges? I think if you'd seen my energy as a 22-year-old when I first started, it was very different. I do absorb a lot of information very quickly. That's true. And I think one of the things that made me successful in those environments was while I did appreciate how difficult the challenges were that we had taken upon ourselves, I didn't let that either make me starstruck or paralyze me, but it was Honestly, it was such a beautiful environment where everyone was just making everything up every day that I saw that model around me. So it gave me permission to kind of figure some things out, make some mistakes and learn really, really fast. But yeah, definitely was not this composed at 22. That's for sure. You really uh, entered the tech sector when it was in its embryonic stage. Tell us what that was like. Oh, it, it was like, I, I've heard it described many times as jumping off the cliff and building the rocket ship on the way down. That is very much what it felt like. Things were moving really, really fast. We had a lot of eyes on us, especially I joined Amazon in 2002. The company was not yet profitable, if you can imagine such a time. And (laughs) we were, we had a lot of eyes on us because Amazon was one of the last remaining investments for most of our shareholders. And so we just experienced the dot-com bust just a, a few years before that. And so the stakes were high. People really wanted a return on their investment and they wanted it now. So that was one of the earliest business lessons I learned there was Jeff always had his sight set on long-term returns on investment rather than being tempted by short returns. And that obviously made all the difference in the way that he reinvested profits, the way he was insatiably driven by the customer experience and getting people comfortable shopping online for the first time. And so it was a very stressful, but the kind of stress that I thrived in. I knew we were doing something that not only had never been done before, but I was experiencing a period of time that will never happen again. The internet will never be invented again. No one will be inventing the gold standard of e-commerce again. And I was just very grateful to be along for the ride. I did not care which chair I had. I just wanted to be in the room. And so you've recently published Bet on Yourself. And can you tell us a little bit about that transition for, you know, working with for these big organizations where you have this support and infrastructure, you know, being an entrepreneur to entrepreneur? So hard. (laughs) It's really, really an adjustment. I worked at Amazon for three years, then moved to California to originally do a PhD at Berkeley and got recruited by Google. So I'd done a couple career transitions before, even though I was young in my career. Then I ended up unexpectedly working at Google for 12 years. And yes, I got very used to having all my experts at my fingertips. I had, you know, policy experts and legal advisors and the best engineers in the world. And then to leave that and to start my own business, not knowing that it was um, just a year and a half before the pandemic was a big challenge. One of my favorite parts about this transition though, has been 
taking those best practices that I learned in Silicon Valley and translating it across different industries, regions. I have clients across five different continents. And so I've really had to find what are the best practices that work in different industries. For example, I have as a rule, I only take one client per industry. So I have one fintech, one ed tech, one health tech. And so I've really had to find what are the core elements of success, all while figuring that out for myself at the same time, hiring my team, building it up, let alone in a country that isn't mine. You know, I'm a recent transplant to Spain, where I'm based now. And so that's an adventure to do it in another language and another way of operating. But that also gave me a lot of empathy for my startup clients or for my scale-up clients. Most of them now are scale-up. They're around Series B, Series C, usually because they're experiencing all the wonderful problems that come with massive, rapid scale and success. And so for us all to be experiencing that together has, has been really unifying and, and very challenging at the same time. And Justin has also been based around the world. So perhaps you could, you could discuss the challenges, the different communication styles and the different yeah. countries you've been based. Yeah, the expectations are very different. For example, my entrepreneurs here in Spain, they're much more about the creativity and the deep thinking, whereas my entrepreneurs in California or New York are much about speed to execution. There's different investment standards. You know, in the States, you can get a lot more runway just with a great idea, whereas my European CEOs need a lot more proof of concept, a lot more data behind it. And so that changes their runway and how they use their investments and the partnerships they bring in and at what stages they get these different advisors and investors. So that's really fascinating to watch in real time, the differences in personality between entrepreneurs in the States and in Europe. I don't know if Justin, if that holds true for your experience as well, but I think that's been fascinating to see what are the core similarities and the core differences. Definitely. Again, I, I would have been based out of the tech sector, Silicon Valley and around the world. Uh, currently in Saudi at the moment in banking, uh, mm -hmm. a lot away from there. The culture and the communication and understanding and giving it back to people in bite-sized pieces that they can digest in the mm -hmm. way that is appetizing to them that they can work with and that they can get around and get behind. And definitely cultural differences everywhere wow. you go, huge. The success of the implementation doesn't matter how well you plan for it. How you implement it and how you kind of customize it in each case, each industry, each company, they're all different. Yeah. And in terms of your criteria, do you take on one client from each sector? What kind of questions are you asking? Because it's an investment of time and I don't know how long you would spend with a company. Yeah, this has been an art. So I started my company three years ago, almost three and a half. And I didn't do that well in the beginning. It took me a while to find where exactly is my niche. And it turns out now that I am really, really good with moonshot thinkers. I actually am not great with someone trying to build something more normal. Uh, I just haven't lived in that world. I've lived it, it with these dreamers and these doers, these people who are unafraid of taking on really crazy things. So I found that my, you have to manage moonshots very, very differently than you manage kind of your core competencies, right? So I'm a big believer in what uh, we in tech call the golden ratio or the 70-20-10. So 70% 70 of your revenue, your employees, your attention is going on that core part of your deliverables. 20% is going into those kind of extensions of it, some creative applications or innovations or efficiencies that you're finding. And then the 10% is where I sit. 10% is seemingly disconnected from your bottom line. You're doing some crazy things and you're preparing for what's coming next in the future. And when you sit solidly in that space, those people need to be managed very, very different than your core deliverables. 
And so they need a lot more freedom of creativity. They need longer runways before proof of concept. And the important part about the golden ratio is that over time, over a decade or so, those are in the inverse. What you thought was a 10% shot at success becomes your 70% core uh, revenue driving over time. So that's why it, whether you're in a very established company or if you're a startup, it's really important to be investing in all three of those areas. And I have found that I invest working with the teams who sit in that 10%, the seemingly crazy dreamers who are doing something that no one's ever done before. So we're not even sure what data to be gathering yet, how to measure success, because it's really unclear how it might have product market fit or how it might be reliant on technologies that aren't yet invented. So that's where I sit. So I, that's why most of my clients are scale-ups that have great traction, good investment, and they now everything's starting to break because all the systems that worked when they were a small startup of five people do not work now that they're doubling their growth and their revenues year over year. And so that's usually when they come in and ask me to help them manage these moonshot bets that they're making because it's working, but also they're terrified that they are the only one who doesn't know how to manage it. Justin, is that what you're seeing? It is. And I mean, a lot of what I started with in Silicon Valley and Intel and bringing new products to market was new product introduction piece needed one skill set and one mm -hmm. set of skills that people had to get people who are innovative and who try things and who would spot patterns and who would react quickly and gather the data when it got into operations and kind of scaling up and starting to, then it was all about costs and it was all about operational efficiencies and repeatability. And the skills actually were a bit of a liability from the initiation phase or for, from the innovation phase for the operation phase because you need everybody on the same page doing exactly the same thing in a very controlled manner as you scale up. Yeah. And Mia, I think another criteria that I use also is I really want to have passion alignment with my CEOs. I'm really focused on making sure that they are putting out into the world a change that I want to see made, whether that's environmental or if it's solving a societal problem. It really needs to be passion-driven and aligned for me because I also learned the hard way that there is a limit to the number of clients I can take on and do it really well. I found that my limit sits around 10, but I love my job when it's closer to five. So that means that I I have the beautiful problem of saying no to more than 90%, probably more like 95% of the requests that come in for my consulting time. And so that is a major criteria that I use in, in choosing the couple of projects I'm going to take on at a time is I really want to be aligned with the changes we're trying to make. We should actually go back to discuss when you talk about Moonshot, for those who don't understand that your beginnings in uh, Google X alphabet, uh, yeah. but just staying on this topic of limits, you're working with big data. I, mean, I don't even know the, the, how this all works, CRM, these concepts mm -hmm. are strange to me, but we think a lot about the future of cities and we think about smart cities and all of this technology that overwhelms, but a lot of us, we are facing water insecurity, you know, transport problems, education issues. So how can these organizations they're working with address those problems? I always start with my consulting clients, taking them back to the very, very beginning. I start our very first session discussing their mission, vision, and value statements. And they all say, no, 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 we've done this before. And many of them have even used consultants to do it. But the reason I start there is because all of the problems that they're facing as they scale go back to those core fundamentals of who are we? What do we stand for? What are we trying to solve in this world? Because then your hiring frustrations that you get as you're shifting from a startup to a scale-up always go back to, are you hiring for that passion mission alignment? How are you promoting your people? What type of actionable feedback and checks are you, are you giving them? It all comes back to those fundamentals of what was the original idea, the passion alignment. I don't tend to take clients who are doing 
very important work. Like for example, if you've got this incredible new SaaS product, fantastic. I, I can recommend some amazing consultants who do that. I'm not really the best fit for those type of products, although I think they're very important. What I'm looking at is like, who's solving for the problems that the world is going to face 20 years from now? How, if you're solving problems that are already underfoot, that's not my zone of genius. I, I really look for who is anticipating the greater needs of society. I'm really concerned of the effects of modern technology on democracy for example. And so I, I want to partner with CEOs who are really thinking about the future and the implications, not only what can we do with technology, but what should we be doing with technology? And also to an extent, if I may say a bit of deceleration. Yeah, I think that's an important part. Taking a step back, for example, when I was at Google and we realized that artificial intelligence was going to become core to every single product built, Google looked at acquiring artificial intelligence companies and they chose a company based in London called DeepMind. And a big selling point, while the technology is stellar and there were a lot of great companies they could have acquired, they chose DeepMind because at the time, 30% of their employees were ethicists. They not only had the engineers who were at the cutting edge of something that was not yet discussed over dinner tables, but they had people in those rooms as they were developing the technologies of the future, asking what should we be doing with this technology, realizing that it was going to become pervasive in every single thing we do. Most of us don't think we're experiencing AI on a daily basis, but I promise you've interacted with it at least 20 times already today. It's just so ingrained in the back end of, of everything we're using in technology. So I think that's where I come from. That's the background of really wanting to value not only what can we do, but what should we be doing? You're right there. Of course, we don't realize the many ways that AI is influencing us. And I was wondering, you know, working within the fast-paced tech sector, also just on a work-life balance, you know, how do you mm. maintain serenity? Have you noticed your, your brain changing influenced by technology? Oh my God, I am currently obsessed with this. I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> about this. There's an incredible podcast by a PhD researcher, a neurologist based in Stanford. It's called the Huberman Podcast. And I am obsessed with these studies of how interacting with technology literally changes the dopamine release in our brains and the ripple effect of behaviors that come when you get these dopamine hits. It's something to be taken very, very, very seriously, especially in evolving minds. That's why we see young teenagers having very extreme effects from this addiction that they have at very young ages to technology because it's designed that way. And I take responsibility in this. So YouTube is as big of a problem as Instagram or these other, every time you get a like or a view or something, you get this dopamine release in your brain that really changes your behaviors. And that's why we're seeing a lot of very, very serious mental health issues in young people. We're seeing suicides of 12 year olds at astronomical unprecedented rates. And it's very much tied to the only connections and the only positive reinforcements they're getting socially are online now, right? I hung out at the mall. I'm old enough that like, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have my first email account until I was the first year of university. I'm so glad that my adolescence was spent offline. My baby sister, I'm the oldest of seven and she's the youngest. And our lives, it's so fascinating for me to watch her social world evolve. She has all kinds of challenges that I never had to face at her age. And I, they're hard enough for me, you know, in my mid forties, let alone as, as a young person who doesn't have a sure self-identity established yet. We were discussing with a lot of neuroscientists about that, Erica Miller as well at MIT. And so you obviously have in place those strategies for limiting your, I don't know, you use certain things to, to limit, but for young people, what are some things that you would recommend for them? 
I'm so glad that you asked this question about work-life balance and being very thoughtful about the way you consume data online or what apps we're using or who we're following. I encourage everybody to regularly do spring cleaning of who you're following. If you look at someone's feed and it makes you feel less than or excluded, unfollow, not worth it. But you want to be following people who are enriching your experience, who make you believe in yourself or inspire you or educate you. And so I try after uh, looking at the data of how your brain responds with dopamine release to using apps, I have a rule. I don't do social media in the morning. I used to wake up to social media. I would just do the scroll and see what everyone's up to. And that's actually the worst way you can start your day. So I start with a workout outside with some sunshine. That's so good for your mental health. And for me, that's non-negotiable. I made a huge mistake. If you read my book, you will see what huge mistakes I made around not having any semblance of work-life balance early in my career. Now, there were ways I counterbalanced that, which we can get into, but I didn't do a great job of that. So mid my career at Google, I set some parameters, some non-negotiables. And the most important one was between seven and 8 a.m. every single day, I was going to be working out and I was going to be outside and I did not have my phone. Now that might sound like nothing, but in those early years, this is early 2000s at Google, that was unheard of. So setting some parameters. Now that's something that I, I continue. But the way I set some balance, even while I was working regularly 18 hour days, was something that I think everyone can adopt. I was very, very clear with myself of three things. One is I wanted to work for leaders that I wanted to become like, not that I just liked, I enjoyed, but I want to become like, because we become the average of the five people we spend most of the time with. So I sought out people who I wanted to start emulating. Second was it was very clear to me and I made it clear to my managers, what did I want to learn from the opportunity? If I was going to spend 18 hours a day, give, give, giving a lot to my job, I wanted to be really clear what I wanted in return. For me, that was often like, what did I want to learn? What expertise did I want to become known for? What areas of growth did it offer me? How, what skills was I adding to uh, my arsenal? And then three was I wanted to consistently disrupt myself. I never wanted to live too firmly in my comfort zone. And that's a big concept that I go into detail in my book, Bet on Yourself, was being proactively disruptive of your own self, because otherwise, you know, if, as everyone has learned in the pandemic, the world kind of does it for you, unless you choose what your future battles are going to be. So even while I didn't feel like I had the ability to create what I would call work-life balance in those early years of tech, that was what fueled me and prevented my burnout. Whereas a lot of my colleagues did burn out because of that exchange of I'm going to give this and I'm going to seek out this in return was very clear for me, even at the earliest stages of my career. And you speak about disruption and I know you were born in Air Force Base and yeah. you're a large family. So how do you feel that prepared you? I jokingly, but it's really true. I jokingly often say that being the oldest of seven kids in an Air Force family, it created my natural bossiness and organizational skills from a very young age. Because if you wanted to get anything done, you had to do it yourself. When you're constantly uprooted, you know, I went to a different kindergarten, first grade and second grade, completely different states. We moved a lot and you, you do learn to be self-reliant. And I was a naturally very timid person. Like my nature is one of perfectionist, like in every negative association with that word, I held myself back out of fear of looking stupid or not doing something perfectly, but the military life and having a big family and then getting into tech so early in my career nurtured me out of my nature 
and allowed me to experiment and realize that I could shift my perception. One of the most important books I read in my entire life was written by Carol Dweck. She's also at Stanford. And her book is called Mindset. And she describes, even if you only read the introduction, it is life-changing, at least it was for me, because it moved me from what she describes two mindsets. One is performance mindset and the other is learning mindset. My nature is performance mindset where I want to do a 10 out of 10 every single time. And if I can't get a 10 out of 10, I don't want to start it because that just, you know, gives me a bad uh, track record. But her book inspired me to shift into a learning mindset. And this is where um, people are really successful in tech. If you have a learning mindset, that means if I don't get a 10 out of 10 this time, I'm going to learn something so that next time I try it, I'll get better. So if the first time I try something, it's a two out of 10. I believe in myself that I will then improve and uh, use those lessons and I will get a four out of 10 and until eventually I, I can become better. And so not doing something perfectly instead of being paralyzing for me became something that was a learning experience that was an investment in my future. And that was really pervasive in tech as well. Yeah. And I think you need to have that balance though of learning and performance from a business yeah. mindset. What's the bottom line? What's it going to cost me? When am I going to turn a profit on this as well? So thinking that the long-term results and uh, from a personal thing, it's yeah. lovely. And that's, I love having that learning experience, but also part of me is always asking, you know, so what, 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 what what's the value? Justin, I'm so glad you brought that up because there's a really important way of measuring progress, especially when you're trying to design something unknown. And that's why so many tech companies use different metrics. So everyone is familiar with KPIs. These are the things that this is how you earn your, your chair. This is how you earn your salary. You must hit 10 out of 10. That's not negotiable. But then what tech uses is what we call OKRs, objectives and key results. And objectives are that part that you can't control. So a lot of companies think they're using OKRs, but most of them, at least if my clients are any <laughs> um, indicator, they're not doing it correctly. They actually conflate them with KPIs and then your team gets really confused because you can't be incentivizing something that's outside of your control, but you need that if you're gonna be innovative. And the best way I explain the difference between a KPI and an OKR is, a, it's an oversimplification, but KPIs are within your control to do, and OKRs are these objectives that are outside your control. For example, I just wrote my first book. I would love for it to be a bestseller. So how am I going to measure that? I could choose to want to be a New York Times bestseller, and that list necessarily correlated to number of book sales. It's how important is it in the cultural conversation at the moment? Or I could measure it through Wall Street Journal bestseller list, and that's literally just by the numbers. So let's say I set a target for myself to become a Wall Street Journal <laughs> bestseller. What I control is I can show up every day and write X number of pages. I can hit my deliverables. I can get it published. I can go on a million podcasts and talk about it and show up where I think my readers are. That's all within my control. But I can't control how many people buy it, how many lists I get on, if it's a cultural moment. So that's an objective. So I have specific things that I'm showing up to do every day that are really hard and I've never done before and I might probably fail at the first time I try, but my objective is what keeps me coming back and coming back. So we have these data-driven things. I can see the sales correlated to how I'm showing up in the world, but that end result is outside of my control. I think it's an oversimplification, but it's a nice illustration of the difference between the two concepts. In terms of those that you've worked with, how did they address those two concepts in their leadership styles, Jeff Bezos, Eric Schmidt, Marissa Maya? I mean, I am fully appreciating only now how they did it at an Olympic level. Most executives have a fairly hard time 
they have very, very clear in their mind where they're going. They have this clear North Star. They know what their priorities are and the mark they're trying to put in the world. They communicate that directly to their leadership team. And then that's where the trickle-down effect usually gets very inconsistent. So what you really need to do with KPIs and OKRs is make it pervasive throughout the culture where everyone has a bias for action, where you're just doing the right things rather than pausing for permission at every small thing because you know exactly where we're going and, and that your bets that you're making are in alignment with that. And then second is you want your leadership team and every level of company, all the way down to your interns, your receptionists, to feel a sense of ownership, to understand exactly what part of that mission is theirs and to feel like if I don't show up today, I understand how that's going to affect the whole of the team. And when you feel that direct alignment with whatever your responsibilities are, no matter how senior or junior you are in the company, that's really motivating. And that's when you can keep your employees sprinting often, which is what scale-ups always feel like. You're constantly sprinting, sprinting, sprinting a marathon. That's how you prevent burnout also, is feeling that sense of control and ownership and that you're part of that problem-solving process. When What's really demotivating and leads to almost instant burnout is if your job starts to feel like a checklist that is dictated by someone else that consistently ends up in burnout. And I find a lot of executives unintentionally, while they're trying to operationalize and streamline their businesses for efficiencies, end up boiling it down to a checklist. And that's really demotivating and people start to burn out then. That alignment and cascading down to the levels and the communication, I think it also allows bubbling up and bottom-up feedback mm. and contribution to it. So it's not seen as a directive authoritarian, you know, downward cascade. There's always kind of feedback loops and the people who can contribute to that can add and, and create value for the companies, which is great. I totally agree. And this is really hard to do. I mean, going back to your question, Mia, about how did Jeff, Eric, and Marissa do this? Jeff is a great example. If you want a super detailed account of exactly how he did this, read this amazing book by Colin Breyer called Working Backwards. Because one of the first things that Jeff did when he realized that the company was growing so fast that he could no longer be in every room where critical decisions were being made, he tasked some of his senior leaders to write down 10 leadership principles by which decisions would be made going forward. So if you just had handed someone on their very first day, these 10 leadership principles and gave them a task, they would have the guidelines by which they would make a decision that Jeff himself would have made had he been in the room. That's very, very powerful. And it's so hard to actually do. I challenge you to sit down right now and be like, how does my decision-making work? What trumps what? What are the hierarchy of needs? What's going to remain true over time? Often they need to be revisited. Those original 10 leadership principles that Jeff created back in the early 2000s, now there's 16 of them. Andy Jassy, when he, he took over as CEO back in October, he added two more. He really felt like there was some importance of work to do in the fulfillment centers and around their culture, which obviously is a huge part of the conversation right now. So he had anticipated that. So that's something that leaders really need to spend a lot of time doing because it's a challenging exercise to get right. Of course, there's mixed feelings about big tech from different yeah. parts of society. Of course, you address that. But regardless of that, it must be inspiring to see efficiency and innovation and fast moving change from the inside like that. But it's just a kind of momentum that the environmental sector really wants to have. So where is the mm -hmm. goal of the circular economy just transition or the net zero movement? Oh, this is absolutely urgent. All the greatest minds are in complete agreement around that. And I think we need our greatest minds really focusing on this. Eric Schmidt's a great example. After leaving Google, he started um, an organization called Schmidt Futures, 
where he's investing in the next great academics, finding them at their earliest stages of their evolution, funding research and focusing on environmental causes, especially oceanic studies, because they're such a big part of environmental change that's happening right now. So I'd love to see more people getting in, invested in that. I think sometimes that could feel too big or we have to leave it to the billionaires to solve. But I actually think there's so many things that we can do in our local communities at a smaller scale. And I think the work that uh, Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos's former wife is doing is such a great example of that. She's giving these incredible gifts to organizations that are really helping things at the ground level make a difference in people's lives today, whether that's education for creating these next scientists who might be able to solve this climate change or show up in the world in a new way or cure cancer or whatever it might be. There's things that we can do in our communities that don't just have to be left to, you know, the philanthropy efforts of billionaires, because I, I, I think we all need to be participating in a much more active way. I'm calling myself out <laughs> in addition. A lot of what we're talking about or that's common, particularly you know, the, the innovations that Amazon and Google have brought is this enabled and brought to reality the whole globalization movement, which for the better. Mm -hmm. What are your views, globalization going forward, what we're seeing now? I don't know that the game is over, it's sunsetting, but there's, there's a different game coming around. And there's, as you say, more of this focus on local, being able to do things more locally, smaller, more customized. It fits in with, clearly technology is a huge enabler for a lot of this mm -hmm. because the, the sort of networks that are coming out, they're not the World Wide Web or the, you know, so China's in one part and maybe Russia's shutting down certain things, apps are being turned off in other countries, et cetera. But what are your thoughts really on globalization, the next chapter and how we kind of prepare for this next chapter? One of the things that worries me the most is that we have limited representation in the participation at that level. I am very concerned that the future seems to be consolidated among the 10 wealthiest, most powerful people in the world who are all white guys. And they're great. I know most of them personally, like I have mad respect for them, but it's really concerning when a private individual can buy Twitter. It's very concerning when a billionaire can own one of the most important news organizations in the United States. When Jeff bought the Washington Post, at first I was very excited about it because we all know that journalism and journalistic integrity is an essential part of modern democracy. And that was very much threatened and dismantled by technology because their revenue structure was destroyed with the internet. So they had to reinvent themselves. So at first when he bought it, I thought, oh good, he's gonna give them new lifeblood. And now I'm like, oh no. Like when we have major billionaires controlling the dialogue, the discussions, the flow of information, whether that's Facebook or Twitter or news organizations, that's really concerning. So my major deliverable and really the motivation behind writing Bet on Yourself was to democratize success, democratize entrepreneurism, and to wake up inside all of us realizing that whether you're an entrepreneur working in another company, or if you're an a more traditional quote unquote entrepreneur. It doesn't have to be in a garage or getting funding from traditional VC companies. I wanted to wake that up in as many minds as possible that we can make a huge difference. No matter your expertise, your industry, your risk tolerance, there are ways that we can all participate in this. And what we need most, especially now when like core algorithms of artificial intelligence are being written is more participation from more perspectives whether that's cultural, you know, every possible definition of diversity, I want more people participating. Because what concerns me most about globalization is it's being controlled by about 10 people. Again, it's kind of interesting because, again, the democratization and giving everybody a voice in some ways is kind of taken away that central or that, that regulated, trusted 
voice at the back of it, or yeah. you, you have to question these things, verified sources and all these kind of things. The, the issue is the transparency, I guess, or the clarity of what, what's the ultimate agenda here, or is there an agenda, or is it just what it makes out to be? I agree. This is so complex. There's another great book called The People Versus Tech, written by a British author, Jamie, I forget his last name. It's really depressing. In fact, his editor <laughs> forced him to add a last chapter, which is giving us hope of like, how do we solve these problems? But I think books like that were, that are really looking at not only are we enjoying technology, but what are we doing to each other? I, and to your point, Justin, really important. How do we bring our common causes together to accelerate that, to have more people participating in it? But to be really clear, what are we trying to accomplish globally? What's important to us? Hopefully the environment, you know, we don't want World War III. We, we want people to, you know, this huge refugee crisis. There's a lot of things that are in the common good of all of us as global citizens and to have more clarity, more direction and ways that people can participate and make a difference is going to be really important. But it's not easy. Like that book outlines like 13 different ways why it's almost impossible to, yeah, to get ahead. But I guess defining the problem is the start of the solution, right? So that's yeah. what we work towards. Yeah. Totally agree. And what are your thoughts on the future of work, which we've all been so affected by the last few years, but you, you know, in relation to AI and everything? I'm really hopeful about it. I'm an optimist by nature, but also in training in tech. I really believe in the ability of people and technology to make substantial changes. So I'm hopeful about it. What I love about AI, for example, is that it can remove a lot of the mundane part of data processing and things that are actually much better, more accurately done by computers. And it frees humans up to do what we do best, which is a lot more of like critical thinking, asking questions, should we do that? Not just can we do that? Or unlocking our creativity. Creativity is something that while I'm sure AI gets better and better creating art or music or even poems that they're doing now, I think that remains so fundamentally human. And I think all of us would enjoy our work experiences a lot more if we were focused more on those tasks of creativity and thoughtfulness and looking at the intentions of our work and removing the mundane data-driven parts of it. For example, yesterday I was with my father-in-law, who's a dermatologist, and we were talking about AI and he was you know, saying, well, the it can't replace me. And I said, absolutely right. What they can do is free you up so you don't have to stare at slides and photos and things over and over and over again. A computer can actually diagnose much more accurately than you can because it's looked at billions of photos and you're human and you have seen maybe 100,000, but still that's not billions. But you could spend your entire time with the patient about recommendation of care, about that bedside manner, about prevention and, and educating people in a way that AI can't. And I think at the end of the conversation, we had a moment of click of him seeing that his work even as a physician, could get more interesting and more rewarding for him by removing some of those mundane tasks, especially billing, which he does not enjoy. Considering stages of transhumanism, I don't know if you personally would get like a brain implant or some of these things that are being workshopped now, but I do want to also go back to the, how do you identify creativity in the teams that you're working with? Because sometimes the more creative individuals can sometimes be quiet and you need to tease them out. Absolutely. My mom is an artist. My, my parents are polar opposites. My dad is this analytical data driven. He was, you know, a fighter pilot flying an F4 phantom jet and then became a lawyer. So he's very much about rules and process and procedures and this plus this equals that. And my mom is much more emotionally intelligent and creative and, and the softer skills of creating moments of beauty or inspiration or Art can be awakening as well to an environmental cause or to a change that needs to be made or, or to understand the suffering of another human. So 
you're absolutely right that both skills need to be present in any well-functioning team, especially in fast-moving industries like tech. And so what you need to do is manage them differently. As I described, teams need to be managed differently. If you have an element of moonshot, and I would propose that every company does need an element of moonshot thinking, those teams in particular are what you're describing, Mia, where you have an engineer working with an artist, working with an ethicist, working with, it seems like a band of misfits, but there's magic in that. When you have these problem-solving skills or procedural instincts, when you get them in a room together, that's why you get such different results. Whereas if you just have your engineers all sitting in a pot over here and your lawyers in a pot over here, they stay within their zone of genius, which works really well in your core 70% of your business. But if you want to create what's next, you need to get everyone out of their comfort zone and really find the best elements of each of their zones of geniuses and managing that um, is definitely an art unto itself. It's very different. And the other question, though, I don't know if it's really relevant because we're talking about AI is whether you would venture into some of those implant territories. At the moment, no, just because I've seen how fast technology evolves. And so I have a feeling like the second I got something implanted, it would be out of date. So that doesn't seem worth it to me. However, there's incredible wearable technologies. There's a company called Grail that's doing very exciting things in, in cancer research where they've got these skin patches, or there's another company literally doing like contact lenses for diabetics, because it's a really good indicator where you don't have to prick your finger all the time. It gives you instant read that you can read on your cell phone just through a contact lens. Those I'm much more like, maybe I would sign me up for that, but implant in my brain, I don't, not at the moment, thanks. <laughs> no, <laughs> we never say never, right? I mean, who knows the, the rate of evolution of, of these technologies, who knows there could be a, a trade-off. For example, if you could predict things going wrong in my body and that you could uh, prevent cancer or give me stage zero diagnosis when something's going wrong with hundred percent accuracy, you know, once we get to those levels, maybe I'll have a conversation. <laughs> and outside of your work as a consultant, you know, what are your creative pursuits? Oh, wow. That's such a fun question. So I'm not sure how to answer that because I have things that are completely unrelated to work. I think because growing up with an artist mom, when I would come home from school and I took it very seriously, my parents didn't put any external pressure on me to perform academically. I did that all myself. So I would come home very, very stressed. And my stress relief was my mom would teach art classes in her studio in, in the bottom floor of our house. And so if I was stressed, I would go down and just make something, paint something. And she did everything like watercolor, oil painting, sculpture, you name it. And so I would just sit down and work on whatever her class was doing that day. And so that's still one of my coping mechanisms is to just use my hands and to unplug my brain a little bit. That's what I get from my, my morning routine routine of like going out for a hike or a walk or a run or, you know, taking care of my body physically. And the end of the day, I'm looking for something creative just for creativity's sake, where there is no measured success. <laughs> so my current obsession is pottery. I really enjoy kind of making, and I'm literally like at the plate making stage. I'm not good at it yet. <laughs> I'm not using a wheel or anything, but I think it's so important to use the other side of our brain. Actually, if you've ever been to a Google office, you'll see this in motion where it's very clear in the research that if you're trying to problem solve, especially something you've never experienced before, engaging both sides of your brain are really important. That's why you get those moments of inspiration just in the shower or when you're on a bike ride or something, because it's back there in the back part of your brain and you can't unlock it until you let it go. And so I find that creative process really important when you're working through some really challenging things. So for me, that often comes when I'm making something with my hands. I also love cooking. 
that's probably one of my favorite things that I do every day. I love to cook at the end of the day. And often I always, in fact, this notebook I have next to me is always open next to me while I'm cooking, because as I'm thinking about a client or a challenge they're having, and I'm in middle of creating a brand new recipe for the first time, I'll get that moment of click where I realize, yes, that's what we should try. Or this is how we can approach that problem. I was started describing the Google office and then got sidetracked on what I do. Google offices, for example, you'll see the engineers taking a break. There'll be like, there's pool tables or old arcade games, like the original Pac-Man, or there's a volleyball court outside, or you're encouraged to do walk and talk one-on-ones because when you're out and doing something physical, that's when our engineers have it. And that's why you see whiteboards everywhere on the Google campus, because while you're playing volleyball or doing a walk and talk with your manager, you had that moment of inspiration to solve really challenging problems. So that's a tradition I try and continue in my work now. And how have you found being in Spain and how has that inspired your creativity? Just a whole different perspective. It has been the best possible thing that could have happened to me after 15 years of very intense Silicon Valley. When I close my laptop here, it's culture whiplash, I describe, <laughs> because when I step out here, I live right on the Mediterranean. So a block and a half from here on my walk home, I have a 13 minute walk home and I walk along the Mediterranean. I get that fresh air. The pace of everything is different. If I was in Silicon Valley, everyone I know would be working, you know, very fast and late hours and high pressure jobs. And here I had this beautiful infusion of most people who are here because the town I live in looks like a postcard. Most people here are actually on vacation or retired. Like, <laughs> so when I step out, there's a different pace. There's different expectation. People sit with their coffee. They would never take it to go. So there's this nice reminder when I close my laptop every day to like take a breath and slow down. I share in my book, I just recently learned, which is the pace of foot traffic in a city is directly correlated to the numbers of patents filed there. And so in Silicon Valley, we were like, go, 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 go. That's why New York feels like that frenzy. You can, I can only take it for a few days. And then here in Spain, it's the polar opposite. As I leave my office at the end of the day, I'm going to be reminded to like literally physically slow down so that by the time I get home, hopefully I'm in that other gear. And I didn't realize that correlation between patents and footfalls. It makes a certain amount of sense, but sometimes, as you say, the good ideas can come from the empty spaces and not fill yeah. In your career, you must have found sometimes, because I know you discussed this as well in terms of like launch dates and stuff like, oh, launch a little bit early because you have to be there first and don't worry, we don't wait till it's perfect. Sometimes you really do have to give the space for the good idea to come. Absolutely. That's the hardest part because you do feel like in academia, they say publish or perish. And in tech, it's, you know, launch first. Everyone wants to be first, but entrepreneurs out there should take heart that Many companies have been wildly successful, not by being first. Google was not the dominant search engine when I started there. And that was 2006. They were number three. So um, I know that there's a lot of pressure, but when we really take a moment to pause and do things properly, that is when you actually have longevity in your ideas. You've given it enough time to bake and rumorate and look at the pros and cons and be much more purposeful in our decision-making. That's really hard. I know, especially when you have very key deliverables. One of my clients right now, is a very challenging summer coming up because he's got specs he has to hit that they have never hit before. They know they're capable of it and they've made some really educated bets of how to produce those results, but they've never done it before. So I find in those, in tech, we use what are called sprints and scrums, which is terms taken from rugby. I've seen two rugby games in my life. I don't understand. Think about it. So I don't know how we ended up hijacking that terminology, but we do. But the core concept there is really important where what you're trying to do is create small sprint cycles, even if they're false 
finish lines. So tell your team for the next six weeks, we're going to focus on this. And then we're going to pause. We're going to reflect on lessons learned, AKA failures and celebrate some of the wins. We're going to take a breath. We're going to celebrate. And then we're going to go again. And I think that's a really healthy way of breaking up this constant cycle of innovation and producing. If you insert this into your culture, because then you don't burn your team out and you learn and you have those moments of pause to reevaluate, reassess, set some goals based on the data you've just collected and then go again. So that's a little way of inserting some purpose and balance into what I know is often a very relentless pace. They're all wonderful lessons. I'm just wondering how to translate them for who are a lot of listeners or students or they're working in the education sphere or nonprofits mm-hmm. or in the art sphere, you know, cultural products. It's, it's a little bit different. I don't know how to introduce that into those cultures. It's an excellent question. Early in my education, in in my career, I made all those mistakes. I didn't feel like I had permission to push back or say no. I didn't give myself the accountability of thinking of my longevity. And so I would encourage students to, when you feel like you're burning out, give yourself permission to at least raise a flag. Because what I found once I finally got brave enough to say something out loud was, For example, let's say you've been given 10 tasks today and you have time for eight of them. Simply saying out loud, I've heard that these 10 things are really important. This is how I'm prioritizing it. That means that I'm going to delegate this over here or ask for a little bit of help, or this is going to spill over until tomorrow. And if your manager, I find your manager usually says like, oh my gosh, no, just these three things have to be done today. Just saying it out loud often invites them to help you reprioritize. Or sometimes you've got it wrong, especially when you're young and you're like, this is what I heard were the most priorities. And that way you save yourself time. Now, not all managers are amazing. So you might have a manager that's a little bit unreasonable or doesn't give you all the context that you need to make those decisions. This is when we seek out high-performing teammates. I think, especially when you're young as a student or in your first job that often does not resemble your dream job, seek out three things. One is a mentor. Often that's your manager. Hopefully she or he is worthy of that. And they really invest in developing your skills and giving you regular actionable feedback. Often not. So you might also have to seek out the second thing, which I call a sponsor. Now, a sponsor should be just one or two steps ahead of you. Young people often make the mistake of going to somebody far senior to them, like 10, 20 years ahead, because they're standing where they hope to be one day. But a sponsor is someone who should have been just going through the door that you want to go through very recently in their career. They've just recently sat down at a table that you want to be at. And that person still has the contacts fresh. They remember exactly how they got there and they can give you a little bit of a playbook of how to do that for yourself. And then the third thing you want is what I call an avatar mentor. And an avatar mentor is that person who's 20 years ahead of you, who's standing on the stages you want to be on, has the expertise you hope to develop, writing the books or running the teams that you want to run. And when those three things are in place, then you can make better assessments of where you're doing well and where to push back and how to seek out that balance or get that next opportunity. But a lot of people early in their career don't have those three things in place. And I know that was a huge moment of click once I finally was able to seek that out for myself. So I encourage you all to do that. As you think about the future and education and the problems we face, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? That's such an important question. What I really hope educators can produce right now is students who see that what makes them different makes them worthy. So not to discount because you look different or no one who comes from where you come from has ever done what you're dreaming of doing. I really hope that people see that as a benefit and not as a hindrance to reaching their biggest goals. And I really want everyone to realize that the world needs you. I think 
for me, that's been especially poignant during the pandemic is really realizing there aren't these big, powerful, all wise, all knowing leaders taking care of everything. We need more participation, whether that's in tech or in democracy or in your community or your family really showing up fully. And I think the best way to prepare yourself is to do things wildly outside of your area of expertise. Take a class seemingly unrelated to your major, learn a foreign language or a new hobby or a new skill, because you're going to learn some things about yourself in the trials and errors that you go through outside of your comfort zone. So I hope a lot of students seek out unique experiences that teach them that they can trust themselves. In fact, I just heard this uh, this week. I am training for a half marathon. This will be my fifth half marathon. It's been six years since my last one. So training is very serious. And the coach in my ears, I have this training app on my phone. And the coach said, you won't push yourself until you feel you trust yourself. And I think that's so true in every level, whether you're training for a marathon or you're you know, preparing for your final examinations or you're taking on a big job, find ways to learn to trust yourself and that you're able and capable and willing to do really hard things. And then you can trust yourself um, to take those up onto the next layer. So that's what I'm hoping that students are being taught to do. Well, thank you so much, Anne Hyatt, for teaching us how to trust ourselves and sharing your insights into leadership and strategies for unlocking our potential. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thanks for having me, Mia. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Justin Hayes with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Podcast Producer was Eric Rosen. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.